0: From the American Association of Nurse Practitioners, I'm the host of today's special edition episode, NP Education Specialist Eve Roberts, and this is NP Pulse, the voice of the nurse practitioner. In the United States, Nearly 30 million people have diabetes, and about 7.7 million have diabetes-related retinopathy, a number that is expected to double by the year 2050. We recently recorded a CE activity entitled Diabetic Retinopathy, Meeting Patient Needs, that will be released in early December in the AAMP CE Center. So today I'm sitting down to talk to two experts in the field of diabetes care. It is my pleasure to welcome nurse practitioner Debbie Hennon, and clinical nurse specialist, Virginia Valentine. Debbie, Virginia, please take a few moments to introduce yourselves to our audience.
1: Hi, I'm Virginia Valentine and I'm an advanced practice nurse in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And I work in a little uh, clinic called Clinica La Esperanza uh, in Albuquerque with primarily an underserved population. Uh, with a full staff of NPs, and I'm their diabetes specialist.
2: This is Debbie Hinnon. I'm an advanced practice nurse in Colorado Springs. I'm part of the University of Colorado Health, and our diabetes clinic is uh, four advanced practice nurses and three dietitians.
1: Yeah, we both kind of got into this uh, back in our early years when we first got educated. And I was uh, working on a master's at the University of Oklahoma and uh, became interested in diabetes. Uh, In fact, everybody in my family has diabetes. And I've always appreciated uh, that I always felt like people with chronic diseases were more
2: interesting. (laughs) So that's kind of my start as well. You know, I was a nursing student following Diana Guthrie around, and she asked me to help with diabetes camp. And I said, oh, of course, I'd love to do that. I've done 4-H camp. I can do this. I knew nothing about kids with diabetes. So my start was right there. I had uh, the opportunity to Uh, work with Dr. and Diana Guthrie at the University of Kansas, and then started my master's degree, uh, which Diana created as a specialty in diabetes. And after she helped create that at Wichita State, she helped Yale create theirs. So that first camp opportunity is what got me by the heartstrings. But then the opportunity to work at the university, oh my gosh, we did research, we did clinic, we started the week-long Diabetes Patient Education Program, and it was expected that you did volunteer work. So I was the state president for ADA. That was all part of my my work and getting started with uh, diabetes. Huge opportunity.
1: Yeah, we've both had long careers of volunteering with the American Diabetes Association. And my first job out of graduate school uh, was with the state health department um, and I was in charge of uh, chronic disease programs and I had a big block grant, uh, a hypertension block grant, which I promptly used to start diabetes education programs in county health departments in rural areas. And uh, so that was uh, great fun.
0: Well, you both have years of experience with patients with diabetes. Uh, how do you integrate diabetes education into your clinical practice and patient care in the day-to-day? Well,
1: I think for me, it boils down to shared clinical decision-making. And so that in order for the patient to be fully integrated into the decision-making about their care, they need to understand it. They need to understand what's happening with diabetes. Uh, They understand the genetic components and then understand how the medications work, uh, so that the two of us can decide and uh, select the right therapies and they can be engaged in the right therapies.
2: I agree. And deep in our hearts, Virginia and I are both educators. So that is integrated into every clinical visit that we have. And people with diabetes need to know the why behind the recommendation and I want people to have as much knowledge and depth of information as they can. I'm always annoyed when people kind of dumb down some answers because people want that information. And so that education is going to help support their behavior change. And diabetes is all about behavior change. So we're not just prescribing and educating. We're trying to help people see what steps they need to take to improve their diabetes care and their management. So that whole process is uh, integral to successful outcomes.
0: So why do you feel it's important for advanced practice nurses to take a lead role in diabetes management?
2: Oh my gosh, Eve, there's a huge shortage of endocrinologists and 90% of diabetes is managed by the primary care, whether that's a physician or the NP or PA. And we especially are well prepared to focus on taking the lead with that patient. But but there's quite frankly not enough endocrinologists. They are retiring, they're dying, there's not enough diabetologists. And the advanced practice nurse is the perfect person to say, I will be the diabetes expert. So I really, really encourage all of our nurse practitioner colleagues to consider developing that expertise in diabetes.
0: So what other ways would you advise um, advanced practice nurses to develop a diabetes specialty?
2: Well, you know, there are now a few more specialty diabetes-specific graduate programs, and, and everything, of course, is online. But that's an opportunity for people to really formally develop their diabetes expertise. And those programs are scattered around the country. And you know, I personally believe that the diabetology fellowships, there's now four of those around the country, and I think they should be uh, including advanced practice nurses. I think we need to advocate for that as well. Um, so so getting those kinds of additional expertise skills, education, certification, credentialing, and potentially, formal uh, fellowship training.
0: How has the environment for advanced practice nurses changed since you guys first got started?
1: Well, they had just invented dirt when I got started. And uh, in fact, when I got my master's in nursing, uh, they didn't even call us clinical nurse specialists. Uh, We were just master's prepared nurses. And uh, so, but uh, when I moved to New Mexico, They were just starting, uh, they had not too far previous uh, given uh, the nurse practitioners full practice authority, and they included the clinical nurse specialist in that and then made uh, prescriptive authority available to us as well. So New Mexico was one of the first states to give full practice authority to the nurse practitioner, And uh, which has been great because we have a huge amount of rural uh, area with uh, very little health care. So that this really helps uh, to have APNs to fill in uh, those spots. And uh,
2: those rural areas have very few endocrinologists. Right, Debbie? Well... Yes, that's true, of course, and I'm so glad you mentioned your age. I am younger than you. (laughs) Dirt was invented, but fire was still experimental when I started. (laughs) And, you know, I totally agree. In Colorado, we, too, are very independent. We don't require collaborative physician signatures for practice. And, uh, you know, I think the huge change with the environment is that the advanced practice nurses are the diabetes specialist and providers appreciate that advanced practice nurse taking that leadership role. In my mind, the perfect setting for the APN with that diabetes expertise is to practice in a large primary care or multi-specialty clinic. Then that, that diabetes champion, that diabetes expert is right there. But things have changed, of course, much more than just having outreach. When we were in Kansas, we had 10 outreach clinics across the state. And now, of course, we're able to do that with a lot of telemedicine. And diabetes lends itself well to telehealth because the pumps, the glucose sensors, all of that data can be uploaded remotely, viewed, discussed. Um, and I I have been teaching people, of course, to do their own foot exam take the monofilament home with them and so even things that we think gosh you're you're not doing everything remotely we really can have some conversation and and look at a foot so things have changed pretty dramatically and the independence of the advanced practice nurse is i think one of the great benefits that's that's happened with the evolution
1: I agree I love working with my group of NPs. They're they're all great, and uh, it's uh, really rewarding.
0: And I've learned a lot. I've learned about stuff I never knew I needed to know. (laughs) What advice would you have for advanced practice nurses just embarking on their careers?
1: Well, uh, I think you want to learn all you can about diabetes, because anywhere from Twenty to thirty percent of the patients you're gonna see in primary care is going to also have diabetes. You may not be the primary diabetes provider, but you need to understand what's going on as you're treating other things and it's uh something that you're gonna to find to be infinitely useful.
2: I think one of the most important things that I've had from for throughout my career is a mentor, and that person that is accessible to you to answer questions is that reassurance. It's the, it's the wind beneath your wings. So if I were sharing one tip, it would be to find that person with that diabetes expertise that says, yes, call me, text me. Uh, the nurse practitioner I'm mentoring right now texts me probably three times a week And some of the questions are very simple. You know, what's the transition dose from um, Victoza to Trulicity or Ozempic to Trulicity? And, you know, formularies change and we have to do that. And you just don't know the answer to that always. So those kinds of quick questions or that ability to call and have an extensive conversation, we do case reviews probably once a month. So uh, that mentor would be the absolute best tip I could share.
1: Yeah, and it also extends to becoming a mentor. I know one of the things that I do is, like, every month or so, I'll have, like, a little lunch and learn uh, with the uh, my colleagues, and we'll sit around and talk about, like, what was, you know, a new medication, or uh, I'll share with them my little one-page uh, cheat sheet on medications, uh, it's actually a teaching tool for patients, but it also helps the provider to see all the ones in that class, what's the different ones. And then I provide a cheat sheet for them on the cabinet that holds all my uh, sample meters. I uh, have a cheat sheet on the front that tells what meter goes to which insurance company. They Oh my that. gosh,
2: that's a gift from heaven. It is.
0: So what can our NPs and other clinicians do to have the greatest impact on improving the lives of people with diabetes?
2: Well, uh, uh, diabetes is a self-managed disease and and apns need to provide education to promote that independence they need to give permission for people to be independent to adjust their own medication particularly insulin insulin titration has been documented in a number of studies to be done successfully and safely as well as it is by by their healthcare provider Uh, The other thing, though, I think that's very important is that NPs need to do the work to get access to the very best medications. We should not prescribe the old generic meds just because they're cheap, because they're easy, they're on the formulary. We need to get the new medications that have the cardiovascular and renal protection for our patients. And that's going to require a prior auth. But the Standards are clear that anybody with risk of cardiovascular disease needs a a GOP with that indication. So that's going to require some work to get that done, but it has far-reaching benefits for all of our patients. Virginia, what would you add?
1: Well, along with that is helping your uh, primary care colleagues to uh, understand why it's important that we use uh, the new classes, the SGLT2s and the GLP1s, because of their uh, cardiovascular and renal uh, Im- improved risk and uh, helping them understand how they work. Uh, why, uh, the other day I had one of my colleagues in a panic, or as Debbie would say, a swivet, because uh, she saw all 3-plus glucose, even though his blood sugar was like, 90 and I said well the, he's supposed to spill glucose because see this this drug right here that's causing him to spill extra sugar and she had kind of missed that little point about the SGLT2s but you know it's always best when they can learn
2: uh on the spot in the real world mhm but that giving permission is is I think really something that we don't always think about needing to do, we have to empower our patients to go ahead and take charge then, as well as our side of the business. I had a patient this week that had type 1 diabetes for 18 years. She's on a pump. She was making some of her own adjustments. So when we were huddling over the data, I said to her, what do you see what patterns are you seeing? And she said, well, my fastings are a little bit high. I said, so what would fix that? And she said, well, changing my basils at night. I said, absolutely. And kind of the rule of thumb is about 10%. She said, I know I've been doing these adjustments, but I wanted to wait and see what you said. <laughs> and I love that. I, I know. So so it, it kind of reminded me that we have to say out loud to our patients, you can do these changes yourself. You make modest changes, you wait and see what the outcome is, and then you make another correction if needed. But, but uh, you know, she was doing things, but maybe feeling a little guilty about it. And she should absolutely be empowered to do self-management.
1: Absolutely. Because uh, I congratulate people when they've made changes that turned out successfully or didn't turn out. And I said, well, that little one rat study didn't work out, did it? Let's try something different.
0: (laughs) How do you translate the standards of diabetes care into patient care and education?
2: The standards of care uh, come to us from the American Diabetes Association. And every year in January, the Professional Development Committee has published the medical update for the standards of care. And so that resource is based on evidence, A-level evidence, B-level evidence, consensus. And so that documented, excuse me, that document is highly respected. And for patients, I say, this is your to-do list. So you need to be sure you are getting that A1C every three months. You're getting the foot exam at the visits, the blood pressure at every visit. Your annual exam needs to include not just five gallons of blood, but you need to be sure you're giving a urine sample so that the kidney evaluation is not just the GFR, but it's the albumin creatinine ratio that your lipids are evaluated. So, so that whole to-do list is an education opportunity and an assignment, if you will, homework, so the patients can have that in hand and take it to their primary care provider to be sure everything's done. And, and the resource for that, by the way, is www.diabetes.org, and then to the professional tab.
1: Absolutely. And also sometimes the ACE guidelines, the American College of Endocrinology, uh, but they usually are fairly close uh, in, in the things that they recommend. One of the cool things that's happened in the last few years is the American Diabetes Association doesn't just make changes in January. They, When something uh, important has happened or been published, they will go ahead and make changes. So it's actually now a living document, and it's updated regularly. And uh, so these are all important. And But I have to tell you, uh, about a year or, or a year and a half ago, um, I walked over to the uh, group of... MPs and handed the nicely printed out in color card that showed you know, kind of an overview of the guidelines. And one of the MPs looked at it and tossed it on the table. He said, well, those aren't for us. I said, oh, yes, they are. They are. Uh. Because we care for such an underserved population. Over half of our patients have Medicaid. But we also have about 20% of our patients are what we call self-pay. So they are uninsured, completely uninsured. And they do pay for care. They come in, they pay, they have a reduced rate for a visit, but and they will pay for their medications. They won't pay $900 a month for a GLP-1, but they'll pay for the generics and you know work hard at, at taking care of themselves. So... Uh, sometimes uh, my colleagues see, oh, well, we can't do all that. Our patients can't afford it. And it's uh, it's important to help them understand that there's a lot in here that is accessible to the self-pay patient. Uh, like that microalbumin uh, is very inexpensive, and we actually even do it in our office. Uh, we do a Uh, A1C in the office, and I think the patient charge is only like $12. So we do try to do some of the labs. Uh, Yes, I'm typically, like a lot of people who've worked in endocrinology for a long time, I want to get, you know, like half a quart of blood labs. I want to see everything, but I have to think about, is that going to add enough value uh, and most of the time, I ask the patient, uh, we could get these labs, would would you be able to pay for these?
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: they usually, you know, they'll say, well, maybe how, like how much? And if you can keep it under $80 or so, sometimes they'll be able to c- afford it.
2: You know, Virginia, the 430B programs that the indigent clinics have is another way for patients to really get the newer meds. Uh, at a very reasonable price, and their formulary on the 430Bs is is surprisingly extensive. So that's a, a resource that I try to be sure patients have if they're cash pay.
1: Yeah, unfortunately that we're not one of those 430B programs, but there are a few federally qualified programs in uh, the community.
0: So, Debbie, yesterday when we were recording the CE activity, um, which ours is on diabetes-related retinopathy, talked about the fact that patients, one of their number one concerns is going blind due to diabetes out of control. Also, you know, kidney disease is up there, too. How did the two of you counsel patients with diabetes to prevent those types of complications?
1: Well, I... uh... People can just, you know, life gets in the way. They may have heard they need an eye exam every year. But, but, you know, but I try to make sure every every single visit, I'm going through the review of systems, ask them if they have any blurry vision. And then I say, when was your last eye exam? Can you remember? And if, and many people, it's years, or they can't even remember it's been so long. And so we try to help them Let's make sure, let's get you referred. Let's get that eye exam. It's so important. We can prevent and give them the positive spin. Getting an eye exam is not just about seeing the letters on the wall. It's about looking at the retina in the back of the eye to make sure it's healthy. And um, that's where blindness starts. But it's also where blindness can be prevented.
2: Absolutely. I I absolutely agree. People need to know what they're up against. And so to help prevent complications, I think people need to know what are the complications and then immediately follow that with the data around the landmark trials that say A1C less than seven helps delay and reduce your risk over time for the kidney and the eye complications, particularly. So so the UKPDS, the United Kingdom Prope- Prospective Diabetes Study, the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial, both of these huge, enormous landmark trials have follow-up studies that have gone on for decades that show those people that had very good control right out of the gate have a legacy benefit. Somehow their body remembers that they had good control at the beginning and their risk of complications, even if that A1C has slipped 10 years later, their risk of complications is still much lower. So so our efforts to help people prevent complications has to include education and not just scaring people. We don't want to say, oh, you'll go blind if you don't control your blood sugars. That's not helpful. We need to be sure people know what the complications are, but there's lots of evidence to help them be able to delay and prevent that. It's tough. It's really very tough. But, you know, this scary conversation has to end with hope. It has to end with motivation. And, and we have to help people keep their batteries charged because it's an ongoing issue, uh, so, for instance, one of the things I'm helping with right now is a project with the CDC. One of the huge efforts from the Center for Disease Control is the Diabetes Prevention Program. So DPP is focused on losing weight, exercise, staying engaged for for multiple months with trying to prevent diabetes. So I'm getting to help uh, with a a gaming project. That will hopefully help people remain engaged and remain motivated after they complete the DPP program. So, so helping people prevent complications is a long-term project, and and boy, it's tough, don't you think, Virginia? Oh, totally. It, it
1: can be a real uh, challenge, and and it's. I agree with Debbie. I sit and draw those little curves that show. Uh, the renal outcomes trials from two of the SGLT drugs uh, that showed uh, that it's possible uh, to uh, sustain a moderate renal function that you don't have to go straight down to uh, dialysis. And Bayer has just gotten approval for a new drug uh, to reduce the risk of uh, renal failure and cardiac disease. So there's a lot
0: happening out there that... Uh, gives people hope. And I think you guys are really onto something talking about um, engagement when it comes to a chronic illness. I feel like with diabetes, you're also kind of going uphill against cultural stigma. How do you guys help overcome that stigma associated with a diagnosis of diabetes, particularly type 2 diabetes?
1: Well, I think uh, advanced practice nurses need to evaluate and reflect on their own implicit bias. Listen to that little voice that's talking when the patient walks in and try to reframe that um, and, you know, say, okay, this is a person uh, that has value and uh, diabetes is not a character flaw. It's absolutely not their fault. It has huge genetic components, as does obesity. And yet there's huge judgments around that. One of the things that I try to do is uh, be transparent about my own diabetes. And I let them know that I've had diabetes for over 40 years, which uh, many of my patients find that real inspiring that I'm still alive. So I do too. (laughs) Um, And so you want to talk about uh, giving people hope, but I also try to uh, improve language as well. So when people say diabetic, uh, refer to people as diabetics, refer to themselves as diabetics, the American Diabetes Association and the Association of Diabetes Care and Education Specialists have come out with language guidelines in the last couple of years so that that contributes to uh, stigma. And so now we try to uh, use the word diabetes. This is a person with diabetes, not a diabetic. And it goes farther uh, even into things like compliance. We've tried to remove that from our vocabulary. And by the way, adherence is just code for compliance. So what's better is to uh, talk about their participation and just talk about, instead of saying they're non-compliant because their A1C is 7.6, how about uh, Mrs. Smith uh, has an A1C of 7.6. She's taking her medications most days. So you talk about what they do instead of putting a label on them. So whenever somebody, if I'm in a group of professionals, or patients, and I hear them say diabetic, diabetic, and I just quietly say person with diabetes, and I might say it twice, and they at some point they turn and look at me and like, oh, yeah. And you do that that's, enough, it changes their behavior.
2: That's subliminal training. That's yes. very clever. But you know, I think the other thing we have to do is meet patients wherever they are, uh, I say to patients, you just do the best you can. You keep moving forward. You don't stop. And and when people realize you're not going to criticize them for who they are, where they are, what they're doing, but you're helping them take another step, I think that kind of no-judgment zone helps with the stigma as well. And uh, those, those people that, that are struggling so much with diabetes – Every minute of every day have to be respected for all the effort that's going into that. And when people are not able to pull off some miracle that we ask them to do, we have to help break that problem down. Those barriers are huge. They're overwhelming. And we have to help people develop baby steps to tackle that. You don't eat the elephant all at once. You eat the elephant one bite at a time. So helping people problem solve is probably one of the most important things uh, to help people move towards success and feel like they're not being blamed for something. They're not, we're not calling them a name.
1: I agree. You know, and one little tiny simple thing that I really try to focus on is making eye contact and holding eye contact, which... is amazing how that makes a difference and in, in helping the patient understand that uh, we I see you and I respect you.
2: Uh-huh. We have to learn computer etiquette to make that little miracle happen, don't we? It's hard on Zoom, but
0: sometimes. <laughs> it sounds like you both agree that the most important thing that we can give patients with diabetes is hope, uh, how do we as clinicians do that?
2: Well, uh, there's lots of positive things that we've talked about, lots of, of cheerleading, lots of positive reinforcement that we've kind of woven into this discussion today. But, but one kind of concrete thing that I do when I finish uh, classes, I give patients one of my business cards and on the back of it, I write hope. So I will talk for just a few minutes about how important it is for them to keep their batteries charged, continue to update themselves with diabetes information, to ask for help when they need it. But their graduation present is hope. And here it is. And I hand it out to people. And it's kind of surprising, you know, that people will take that and and have kind of a smile on their face, because that's something that you can put on your computer, on your refrigerator, and maybe be reminded of that, that positive inspiration.
1: I agree. Whenever somebody has had a big A1C
2: improvement,
1: you know, even if it's gone from 12 down to 9.5, I just go on and on about how wonderful that is. And w- we get the A1C result from our machine on a little sticker that the MA has put at the bottom of the worksheet, So I will draw a star and say, here is your gold star. And I tear it off and give it to them. So they have their A1C uh, result and the big gold star. And they all take that with them. Mm -hmm. They love that.
2: Right.
0: Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Debbie and Virginia. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you and gaining your perspective and insights on treating patients with diabetes.
2: Thank you. Yes, thanks, Eve.
0: To our listeners, I hope you found this episode educational and can apply some of what was discussed to your own practice. If you're a nurse practitioner and not currently a member of AAMP, I urge you to consider joining your professional organization. Membership gives you access to the AAMP CE Center and hundreds of free CE with new activities added weekly. Don't forget that you can learn more about diabetes-related retinopathy and earn continuing education when Diabetic Retinopathy Meeting Patient Needs launches in the AAMP CE Center. You can find this activity and many others by visiting aamp.org forward slash CE Center. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast, share with your colleagues, and check back each month for new episodes.